Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Adam Stone, and this is the Committed Collective Podcast. With my co-host, Steve Kerwin and Byron Hazley, we speak to an array of great guests to discuss ways to unify, educate, and empower ourselves against racism and social economic inequality. Steve, where can our listeners find us on social media? Yeah, first off, you can find us on our website at thecommittedcollective.org. Don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Next, you can find us at The Committed Collective on Instagram and Facebook. And my personal favorite, The Committed Collective Forum on Facebook, where we have open dialogue topics about conversations that we need to have that we might not necessarily want to. As always, remember to challenge inequalities and champion change now. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Adam Stone. Uh, this is Committed Collective Podcast coming back at you. We have a great guest today, Steve Kerwin in the house with us, too. Uh, Steve, how you doing? Man, Adam, I'm doing good. It's the Midwest. We're trying to get through the winter. I'm getting ready. Spring and summer. I'm trying to get my bank account right. You know, in the spring and summer, I like to go and do events. So, you know, we're trying to get it there. I could use a little bit more in my account. I'm trying to save every single penny. So I don't know if you got any uh, like uh, side hustles or something I can get into for the next few months or, you know, even if I can generate like, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month would um, help me out immensely. Well, I might have the right person for you today. Our guest, Mr. Scott Santos, writer, universal basic income advocate. Thank you for joining the show. I uh, really appreciate having you. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me on the show. Great. Thanks uh, for being here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and what got you into being a UBI advocate and what is universal basic income? Sure. So I guess I'll, I'll start off just by uh, defining basic income since uh, it'll be the main topic. And uh, so basic income, there's uh, a few major elements to it. And it's this is a an amount of money that's provided to a community that is uh, unconditional, universal, regularly provided uh, to the individual in the form of cash. So those uh, five elements are what base, make up a, a basic income or UBI. And I got into this uh, idea back in 2013, actually. So I've been at this for a while. And uh, I got into it actually through the technological angle. So mm-hmm. even this was actually even before like the big report came out that suggested that within 20 years, half of all jobs could be uh, automated away. And the, it was it was around that time that I really got thinking about, you know, what is the future that we're going to um, as we automate? more and more jobs, like, shouldn't that be a good thing? How can we make it like work for everyone? And that introduced me to the concept of basic income, which I then looked into. And it was really after like looking into all the evidence that we already had. So not only like the kind of philosophy or reasoning behind it, but like the, the hard evidence behind it. And also learning more about just the way the existing safety net worked and just diving into all that. I just realized that this is an idea that is really important, possibly the most important idea to make happen. And so it's not just something that we need, like, you know, within the next 20 years, but it's it's something that we should have had like 20 years ago. And uh, every day that we don't have it, I think is a, is another bad day. So um, once I reached that realization, uh, I decided to just put as much work into it as I could. Um, learning and writing about it, uh, trying to uh, explain it, simplify it down to people, uh, communicate it, build a movement around it. And uh, uh, here I am now today. 
All right, Scott, I'm going to ask a question. I'm sure you've never, ever gotten this question when you presented this idea. So I'm going to be the first one to ask, how, as a country, do we pay for $1,000 a month to be distributed to every single living adult in this country? The floor is yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely the uh, one of the top three most frequently asked questions is, is how do we pay for it? And so... I like to flip that on its head immediately too and and ask, you know, what is the cost of not having a basic income? Because this idea is like it's zero dollars right now. And then if we start paying, say, whatever, a trillion, two trillion, three trillion, whatever is this gross price tag, then it's from zero to three trillion. And that's not true. Like poverty is very expensive. It has impacts on the criminal justice system. It has impacts on our healthcare system. It has impacts on our productivity as a society. Um, There's so many costs. So just as an idea, the cost of child poverty alone costs over a trillion dollars a year. And every dollar spent eliminating, reducing child poverty actually has an eight to one return on investment. So it's that kind of thing that we're missing out on is that if even just asking this question and thinking, oh my gosh, it's so expensive, we're missing out on the trillions of dollars a year that we spend just like nothing uh, as a result of the existing system having poverty, having extreme inequality, having chronic stress, like all these things are not free. So with that out of the way, I also like to point to the fact that if inequality had not changed since the 1970s, when productivity decoupled from wages, then we would actually be actually $2.5 trillion a year would be flowing to the bottom 90%. So effectively, we already should be having a basic income flowing to everyone, except all the productivity gains over the past decades have gone to the very, very top. So of course, we can't afford it when we already could be doing it. It's just a matter of choosing to actually do it. Um, we have to actually connect these productivity gains to everybody. And I would argue the best way to do that is the UBI. And this is the idea of the gross cost versus net cost kind of thing. So I think it's important that people understand too, that when we talk about the cost, it's not simply just the amount of money per person times the amount of people. Um, because we're talking about a, um, in a distribution on one side and a tax reduction on the other, then you have to actually connect, uh, calculate the net distribution. So if you calculate the net distribution, meaning that if you're earning $0 a year and you start getting a $12,000 a year, then you are a full recipient of that income. But if you're earning, if you um, are earning, say, $50,000 a year and you start getting this $12,000 a year and your taxes go up to pay for it, then your net recipient, the, the net amount that you receive, let's say, is $6,000 a year. And so you aren't the cost for you to receive it isn't the full $12,000 because you're actually spending, say, $6,000 to receive $12,000. And then there's someone who's spending $12,000 to receive $12,000, which means it's zero for them. And then, as you can see, there's like a, it's shaped like a negative income tax kind of thing. So around, say, like a, the third of the cost of the, of the gross cost is actually like the net cost of basic income. And then again, you have to calculate all the savings from, um, from social savings and also savings from you know, programs like welfare, tax credits that you no longer need to do, 
Um, there's just a many, many ways of going about this that's just not as expensive as people think it is. And overall, we'll have a great reduction in overall societal costs. In a, in a brief synopsis per se, you're talking about shifting money from programs into UBI. I didn't hear you say taxing the wealthy an extra percentage to make this happen. Would that be a part of the equation? And I apologize if I missed it. Yeah, yeah. It, there's there's certainly many, many ways of going about um, uh, what taxes you want to pair with the UBI. And personally, like I don't subscribe to a wealth tax being the most effective way of going about that. But I do think that there are taxes that can get at this in a really good way that actually has good incentives structures like say a land value tax is a tax on wealth. It's not your typical kind of tax. And I think that that actually would create really good incentives. And I also like um, something like a consumption tax, uh, value added tax, like this would actually be taxing consumption instead of income. And so therefore you're actually encouraging investment and you're actually discouraging over consumption. And I think that that makes more sense as well instead of say adding in another income tax. Uh, more income tax. But then I also think that we should look at just the existing tax expenditures that we're already doing. So we actually, let's say we provide $1.5 trillion a year in subsidies to the top you know, 1%. And so it, our tax structure and our, our, our tax subsidies are highly unequal. And what we could do is say, instead of subsidizing you know, a rich person, to like enable, um, help them afford their mansion by this, you know, home mortgage interest rate deduction that effectively is $30,000 a year. Like, let's cut that part. Let's get rid of that deduction and instead just provide them the same $12,000 a year or whatever we have it set at as we do everyone else. And then so therefore their taxes would go up, but we would actually not even be raising their taxes. We'd just be reducing the amount of subsidies that we already give them. Yeah. And I, I I like that as well, because I think the hardest thing we do as a society, we are so polarized when it comes to politics and 0.01% control just about everything now we live in that. So it's just very, very hard to make change. And when we come up with an idea to have them pay more, it's just going to be very difficult to pass. So my my next drawback that, that I see in, in in this was when we talked about eliminating programs. Well, what about the disability programs or healthcare programs that could get hit that are beyond a thousand dollars a month? So, yeah, yeah, I think we should be really smart about the programs that we currently already have and how to integrate that with a UBI. And that integration requires, you know, us looking at okay, well, how much UBI are we talking about? And then based on that, we can decide what makes sense to modify. And so there are certain programs that I think that that we would be good to just get rid of entirely um, and replace with basic income. I think like TANF is a good example of that kind of program because it's just so atrociously bad at how many people it excludes. So like in my state of Louisiana, for every 100 families in poverty, four receive TANF assistance. And so this is a program that's a, it's a basically a blank check to the states. They can do with what they want. And mm-hmm. for the most part, they aren't providing it directly to mm-hmm. people. They're coming up with all other reasons to spend it or not even to spend it. There are billions of dollars in TANF funds just sitting there that states are refusing to spend. It's just absurd. Now, when we talk about disability, 
that's a program that I think should actually exist on top of the UBI okay. and the amount um, that we can adjust the amount depending on whatever the UBI is. And I think Social Security is an example of that too, where we could actually say reduce the size of Social Security and add it on top of the UBI. And so therefore we could essentially cut uh, Social Security taxes and shrink down the amount of Social Security being provided to people. And because there would be less need of it because they provided you know, the UBI too. And when it comes to things like education and healthcare, you know, obviously, um, you know, I think that that healthcare is a great example of something where it's not working as efficiently as it would without a UBI. Because again, we end up treating the costs of poverty. We end up treating the costs of inequality and insecurity. Yep. These things are really expensive. So we're actually spending a lot more money than we would if we just had a UBI. And so we don't have to like reduce the actual, you know, Medicare or, or, or anything like that. We'd just be spending less money on those things with a healthier population. And when it comes to education, that's a good example of how UBI would make an existing program work better because it's not about, you know, um, saving money in education, but the money that we put into education, investing in our kids would actually go further. You know, kids would actually, because they have less stressful home environments, because they go to classes with like full stomachs, they're not as stressed out. They can focus on their classes. We know that these have impacts on um, how kids do in school. So I think that, that with UBI, the money that we're putting into investing in our kids would actually have a lot better results um, than not doing that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, Scott, your idea in terms of kind of cutting out the middleman and letting people have the ability to figure out which areas of their life, you know, in terms of like the TCC pillars, the economy, the healthcare, the education aspect, the housing aspects, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can divvy that up. What are your, you know, your, you definitely have thought this out like Steve said, you, you know, you've been in it since 2013 and you, your website is very thorough and has a lot of FAQs that go through a lot of different scenarios and questions that people have if they're new to the topic. So we'll definitely post that in the show notes so people can refer to that. But in terms of, you know, you being an expert in this, what are your biggest concerns when implementing UBI? What, what does somebody like yourself, a huge proponent for see as some of the things that could be red flags or things that people should watch out for? I think the main thing is that there are ways of implementing a basic income that aren't basic income. And so again, when I mentioned the, the five factors that actually define a basic income, people will think of these things like, oh, well, let's do basic income, but let's target it. So let's not have universality. Let's actually try to make it so that we exclude um, those who aren't earning, who we consider to be earning too much, and that'll make it better. And they won't make it better. Like there actually are, there's very strong reasons for each of the elements of a basic income that make it so important and make it such a good idea. These are not improvements to change these things, not an improvement to say, oh, well, instead of unconditional, let's make it conditional on say this or this or this. And no, it shouldn't be that we should, you know, when it comes to conditions, it's really just, are you alive? And maybe are you are a citizen, you know, of this nation? Those are the kinds of conditions that you need, not a work requirement, not these kinds of if you do this, then we give it to you kind of thing that ruins the the power and the freedom of this idea. So that's the main thing is that it needs to actually be UBI and not just being called a UBI. Now, when it comes to kind of 
um, the downsides of basic income. I think this is kind of like an eye of the beholder kind of, of discussion. Um, like as an example, um, if I were like an abusive husband, then I might not like the idea of my wife suddenly having this power and, and freedom of financial independence to leave. And because so many people are in these relationships right now because they don't have that power to leave that relationship. And so from my perspective in that situation, maybe I wouldn't like the idea of a basic income, but it doesn't make it a bad idea. Like <laughs> I would say, no, yeah. that makes it actually a really good idea. Same thing goes for like, um, you know, high interest um, loans, like payday loans. Like if you, if you have a business and you've built a business that actually exists on people living in a state of, of where money is scarce and they need that money due to having to pay their bills, they're willing to spend like a thousand percent interest in order to get this money in advance, then maybe I'm not going to have a great time when basic income happens because my business was built on essentially the lack of basic income. So these these (laughs) kinds of things that are going to cause problems to certain people. And I'm going to say, you know, I don't care if they cause problems for those people (laughs) because they did the wrong thing. Like we actually should have a society that's not built on those things. They should actually be built on lack of poverty Mm -hmm. and, um, actual financial independence for everyone. So Scott, how do you see UBI play against what the history of the United States specifically is, is built around? You know, there's been a lot of racism, inequality that has been the foundation of, you know, a lot of the neighborhoods that are hit hardest with poverty. How does that balance against now giving a thousand dollars to everybody when, you know, there's other ideas out there regarding like reparations and other things that are more focused, you know, I guess it is in a sense conditional because it's conditioned on being, you know, uh, disenfranchised for a generation. But, you know, how does that play against you, what you think UBI can be, how it can be best implemented? Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's, that's the challenge uh, is I would argue that, you know, one of the reasons that we don't have it yet is because of this systemic racism. Um, like I, I would look back at this, um, look under Nixon when, when Nixon almost passed his family assistance plan, which was, um, essentially a guaranteed income for families. And one of the reasons why that didn't happen um, this is a response by by uh, the Democratic senator in the um, uh, at the time, uh, Russell Long was his mm-hmm. name. He's actually the son of Huey Long in, in Louisiana. And uh, he was concerned. His question was, who will iron my shirts? Uh, so his his concern was that if people had an unconditional basic income, um, you know, there is a family assistance plan. And even that actually had like a soft work requirement. But his concern was still that if people had the power to refuse to work, then they wouldn't work. And his was he was looking at this from this, you know, racialized perspective, being this southern senator. And he liked his power and he didn't want black people to gain too much power. So that is it's that's a that's a, always been an obstacle. And here's where the thing is, too, is that. It's always been this, this almost kind of uh, this, this trick, this, this illusion that um, this means-tested, targeted benefits that we ended up doing, that we have the safety net, is actually 
not racialized and is actually somehow equal and actually helps people in need the most. Like this is this myth that's out there is that, oh, are we only help the poor and those exist, those programs are out there and they help people. And no, if you look at those programs, they're actually very unequal when it comes to race. If you look at state by state, the states with the the programs with the most conditions are in those the, those states where more black people are recipients versus white people where there's a lot fewer conditions. They make it as easy as possible when there's more white people involved. And you just look at this across um, you know every program. And so it's a it's a trick to 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 say to like the left these supporters on the left, these progressives to say, let's make sure that we get only to certain people because they need it. And it's like, no, as soon as you have a condition, you are going to be excluding people because it's unequal. There's going to be loopholes. There's going to be stigma. There's going to be all sorts of creative ways people use in order to make it so that white people get more than black people. You have to actually say no conditions, human right. And then that's how you're able to actually finally create this firm universal floor underneath everyone instead of this racialized system that we have right now. Oh man. Um, I, yeah, that was heavy. That was heavy. That, 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 was nice. you, you, that was, that was really good. And I, I will, I will say this and we'll say it. So Scott, is it Santons? Am I saying it right? Yeah. Santons. Yeah. Santons. ScottSands.com. S-A-N-T-E-N-S. Um, he has a frequently asked question portion. And I went through this thing because I was like everybody else. I have questions. I am somebody who I'm a registered Democrat. I vote historically Democrat, but I also will criticize that if I was to look at both parties, uh, when it comes to problems we have, Republicans put their head in the sand and pretend it's not there. And Democrats go, let's just throw a bunch of money at it and see if it goes away. And I really, really like UBI in this sense, because like you said, there's nothing to it. It's not going to the bot. If you make 60 grand or less, it's just literally everybody gets us. Somebody's going to use it for housing. Somebody makes enough money that they might just donate theirs to a great nonprofit organization that's trying to make the world a better place. Um, however, that works. So we just saw a stimulus come through. And obviously, I know that, you know, yours is is shifting money where stimulus is here. Let's just create a bunch of money, throw it in. And then all of a sudden inflation goes up or that's what it appears. So some people are going to push back on UBI and they're going to say, go look at your your local McDonald's or Taco Bell and your restaurants and different places. They all have help wanted signs. Tell me, I know we're getting short on time here now. Doesn't this present the exact same problem or no? Yeah, so the, it's really interesting to look at the um, the situation that we're in right now with the pandemic and um, look into this, really this increased bargaining power that we've seen with workers. And so I've long argued that UBI will provide people with enhanced bargaining power. And so that it's not that people will stop working, it's that they'll demand higher wages for jobs that have low demand. So for people who don't want to do them for work that that people don't want to do. It's not fun. It's hard work. Um, that should pay more. Like these jobs should actually pay more. And I think that makes more sense than having the minimum wage floor where you're actually purposely setting it versus people saying, I will do this job for this amount of money or I won't do it for that amount of money. It needs to be at least this much. Um, 
that's what has been missing. That's how you create like a free labor market is for people to be able to have this walk away option without fearing for their lives. So here we are in this situation where people are practicing this like, well, I know you need me. And so I am not going to go back unless you actually raise these wages. And that's where people are freaking out and saying, oh, there's a labor shortage. Um, What are we going to do? And like the fact is the response should be, well, you got to pay people more. And the the beauty about UBI too, is that you actually will subsidize work that people want to do. So that's where this difference is, is that let's say if you're doing a job or, or, or let's say you would like to be able to do a job for say $30,000 a year, it's that's, you can't afford that right now. But if you have this UBI, then you could actually do this. They add together. You can say, well, actually I could become a teacher now. Um, I'd be happy to do that. It, I, and I'll do that instead of working in the oil fields or something. And so that's the difference where you can actually subsidize valuable labor and even unpaid labor that people would happily do for free um, versus the the situation we have now. And then the other part of this is, is yeah, we are in an inflationary environment. And I argue it's not because that there's too much demand. It's like the this idea that that because we provided three stimulus checks, that the cost of food is up is just kind of ridiculous. Like, uh, that's not it. The fact is that we're in a pandemic. The pandemic has impacted our global supply chain. It's impacted our ability to actually create the amount of goods that we could otherwise produce. And also during this pandemic, we actually shifted a lot from services to goods. So, you know, we stopped going out uh, to dinner all the time. And instead we started ordering stuff at home. And so we increased the amount of stuff going through the supply chain. And here we are, like, it's, it's harder that way. If you have, it's not, it's not so much that there's too much demand for supply. It's that there's too little supply for the amount of demand. And those two things are very different. And I would argue that what we want to do is focus instead, if we're, if you want to combat inflation, we need to recognize the actual causes because the worst thing to do would be able to, would be to say, let's reduce the amount of money people have. You know, let's raise their taxes. Let's unemploy people. Let's raise interest rates. Let's do these things to pull money out of the system so that there's less inflation. Like, no, that's that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is say, okay, where are the bottlenecks? Let's focus on those. Let's make investments in the future so that we can actually have more resilient supply chains. Let's actually, you know, reshore things that we put offshore, get back to manufacturing the U.S., automate those things because again, we actually shifted those overseas because labor was cheaper. Whereas now machines can actually do that for cheaper. Now put those back in the U S create more stuff in the U S via robots instead of cheap labor overseas. And now we actually have this, a more able, um, more highly productive supply chain that can handle stuff like this. And, you know, we're going to be having this kind of thing again. So we want to be prepared for that. And we, as part of this, we have to recognize the actual causes and we have to make the investments so that we don't run into the same kind of thing again. And um, hopefully people, and I, I mean, I know from the very beginning that people are going to be blaming the stimulus checks for inflation, but the fact is like, you know, people are always going to be confused with, with what actually causes inflation. Um, and that's also why I bought my book. So uh, <laughs> check out my book, Let There Be Money. Um, 
I don't have a copy with me at the moment, but uh, I go into the um, actual like explanations of what causes inflation with a better understanding of what money is and how this ties into UBI and the importance of UBI to actually reduce inflation. I mean, have you, so you've been doing this for, let's say, let's just say eight or nine years. Have you met a fiscally conservative person that agrees with you? You change their mind or is that your biggest hurdle when you're having these conversations? I feel like you're going to speak on, on deaf ears the minute you bring up universal income. Oh no, not at all. Like there's actually a good amount of conservatives who are who who love this idea, especially libertarians, but um, you know, even traditional conservatives too. In fact, I would say that the people who are hardest to get on board are actually progressives. And and when I say progressives, <laughs> I mean like extreme kind of yep. far left socialist democrat yep. progressives. Yep. And cuz they really can't get on board with the universality. Like they believe that, no, we cannot provide anything at all to, you know, Elon Musk or yep. Bill Gates or anyone like we have to design this program somehow to exclude them. And it's really tricky to explain universality to a progressive. And I think it's much easier to refrain to explain universality to a conservative. That's what I, I loved about you. But I tell you what, Scott, I. I hope you had fun with me at Adam because, buddy, you might come back on and it might be 15, 20 times. <laughs> so, I mean, I have so many questions. If I was sitting with you having a, a drink at a bar at seven o'clock, we would be there till two o'clock in the morning and a snap of a finger um, <laughs> because this was this was outstanding. Out, out, outstanding. And I, I cannot preface on anybody. Uh, we'll get the, the name of your book as well. Um, I'm in on that. You you got my wheels spinning. When I heard about you, I was like, yeah, I know Andrew Yang did it. He was talking about it too. And But you really, and your every question that I had is answered in some component um, in a very lengthy response. So yeah, I can't, uh, can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. And that's Let There Be Money. Right, Scott? Your book, yeah. Let There Be Money? Yeah, Let There Be Money. You can find it on Amazon. All right, perfect. Well, thanks again for joining us on the show today. And for Steve Kerwin, this is Adam Stone. This is Committed Collective. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Well, that's the show. Thanks again for joining us. And if you did not get the social media from earlier, Steve, can you tell them one more time where they can find us? Absolutely, Adam. Go to the website, thecommittedcollective.org. Don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter. You could find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Committed Collective. And my personal favorite on Facebook, The Committed Collective Forum, where we have open dialogue topics about conversations that we need to have that we might not necessarily want to. As always, remember to challenge inequalities and champion change now.